into what has become an annual tradition here at Better in the Dark, our obscure horror episode, where not only do we have Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson, but we also have our good friend and co-host who has become kind of like the permanent co-host on these uh, episodes. These episodes, yeah. yeah. And of course, the <laughs> patriarch of the first family of Better in the Dark, Desmond Reddick. <laughs> of course... He's all by himself with a bunch of oysters, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I was just going to say, I think besides being an absolutely huge fan of Better in the Dark, I think the reason I like you guys so much is because you call me the patriarch of the family. Because, uh, if, I, if my wife were on the line, it certainly wouldn't be that way. Well, may I just say, it saddened me that we lost Married to Movies. 
earlier this year. Yeah, it saddened us too. It, it was getting to be a bit too much. Megan and I are going to be doing reviews from time to time on the show, and we're going to have a good, hearty discussion coming up in the relatively near future on True Blood, which I have just started watching in the fourth season, which she's been watching since season one. So That is something that, to this date, I have never watched yet, and everybody, that's one of the things that people keep telling, oh man, you gotta watch that, you gotta watch, oh, it's great, it's good stuff, it's sex, it's vampires, it's sex, it's... It's Rogue getting your kid off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's for sure. See, I read a couple of the novels because I was assigned them to review them for Fangoria way back when they first came out, the ones by Charlene Harris. And I just want to punch her in the face. So <laughs> I really don't want to see a TV show that glorifies the crap fest that she's made a cottage industry out of. <laughs> it's going on all the time, Tom. I can't speak to the novels. The TV show is pretty good, barring one massive problem. Okay. And that is a Pollyanna lead character who I just don't give a shit about. Which is I, basically I, what the character is like in the novels. Okay. The Suki Stackhouse, right? Just, uh, But I think that every supporting character is fantastic. And there are a couple that are really endearing. So I find it very odd that there's this character that the whole thing is supposed to be hung around that's just not very good. I kind of wonder if she's a, of a Mary Sue for Charlene Harris. I imagine. Although there's that weird, at least I can't talk about it in the TV show, but in the novels is this weird thing where Harris ascribes her as being a victim of child sexual abuse, not because it really informs the character, but because you, they want you, the reader, to have sympathy for her. Mm. And I there hate that. See, I would start watching it myself, but I've already promised Patricia, who got hooked onto Weeds, she made mm. me promise I would watch that. Which isn't kind of hard for me, because it's got Mary Louise Parker in yeah. it. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> as I told Patricia, I said, well, shit, if you had told me she was in a long time I'm go out of bed watch. You'd have been convincing her to watch it. Oh, right. She's fantastic. A lot of that hangs on Mary Louise Parker. Yeah. <laughs> Patricia started watching it, and so help me. That's the problem with Netflix. She's been up to, you no know lie, two, three, four in the morning watching, because of course you can watch one episode right. after another. She said, oh, Dirk, you got to watch this. I don't want to see that. Wait a minute. Is that Mary Louise Parker? Yeah. She said, yeah, well, well, shit, that's all you had to say. <laughs> So once again, we have a six-pack of movies that those of you who are planning on having little horror movie marathons and such around Halloween may have overlooked in your rush to grab Freddy or Jason or Michael for the 13th time. Or even worse, the reboots of Freddy and Michael and oh, Jason. Oh, God. Yeah. I was telling you, Des, I finally got around to seeing the A Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Yes. And I watched the oh, last. Okay. That movie was just so it had no energy in it, no light. With Jackie Earl Haley, I figured that he was really going to. Yeah. It, it was wow. Like, now, I, if he played Freddy as Guerrero, yeah, then go to sleep, dude. After about an hour into this thing, I said to myself, "Why am I watching this?" It's just boring. It's a competently made movie, yes. There's really nothing wrong with it, but then there's nothing right with it either. There's no reason to watch it. Especially now when I got the original yeah. sitting right there. I said, shit, I'd been better off popping in the original than watching it. The problem I find with most of the Platinum Dunes remakes is that they take every bit of energy and uniqueness from the original out. Yeah. I would agree with that with one exception. I think Friday the 13th, the Platinum Dunes remake, is not only a competent remake, I think it is a fantastic 
canonical Friday the 13th release. I think that it captures everything that people like about the original series, and, and it has all the problems that the original series has as well. So I think that a lot of people who talk down about that series are doing it simply because it's a remake. But the boobs, the blood, it's all there. And let's face it, the Friday the 13th series is not necessarily highbrow. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, to say the least. <laughs> So it's just a big, dumb, gory film featuring teenagers who enjoy having sex and smoking pot and getting killed. And, and that's exactly what those movies... Ryan uh, Hansen is in that film, right? Ryan Hansen. Ryan, Ryan I, who played Dick Casablanca and Veronica Mars. See, I've never seen an episode of Veronica okay. Mars. Ooh. Yeah, I, I know. I, I've yeah. had to do that sentence, and I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Well, folks, it's been nice having Desmond Reddick as our guest host. Yeah, go watch that movie. <laughs> what you tell Tom you have not seen Veronica Mars? Hold on while I get the paddles. i got to resuscitate him. He's on the floor. <laughs> Give me a second. Clear! Yes, he is in the, the Friday the 13th remake. The reason I ask is it almost would be worthwhile for a rental fee just to see Dick Casablancas gets killed. A reference that makes absolutely no impression on either one of us. But those people who watch Veronica Mars are laughing right now. Probably are. Who does he play in the movie? And don't tell me the name, because I won't, I won't know who that is. <laughs> okay, I only know that he's in the movie. Okay. I'm sure he dies horribly. Well, I imagine so. Just about everybody in that film dies horribly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm not going to recognize his... I don't even recognize his face. Yes, it's a lost cause. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, he might be the stupendous tits guy. Okay, now see, now I, now, okay, now see, much, much like my wife got my attention about weed by just mentioning Mary Louise Paul, see, now you've got my attention of watching the Friday the 13th remake, which I've never seen, by saying Spectacular Tits. <laughs> Those stupendous. Stupendous, stupendous tits, yeah. See, now you've got my attention. Okay, I gotta put that in the instant queue to watch. <laughs> Platinum Dunes owes me a check. So, as usual, since you are the guest, I guess you can start us off with your first of two choices. All right. I think I'll go alphabetically with mine. Funnily enough, while last year's episode was a very international mm-hmm. themed episode, I have continued that trend and... I have picked a Spanish and a British film. So first off, I'll go with the Spanish. And do either of you know who Paul Nashi is? Of course I know who Paul Nashi is. Waldemir the Werewolf. Oh, okay. Of course. So, is it Waldemir? Uh, oh, I got it right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. It's Waldemar. Paul Nashi has been called the Lon Chaney Jr. of Spain in that he plays all the monsters, everything from Hunchback to Dracula, and he writes and directs many of his films as well. Most of the time you'll see in a Paul Nashi film, you'll see it directed by Jacinto Molina, which is actually his real name. He goes by Paul Nashi when he acts. His most famous character that he's portrayed in some 20-odd films is Ombre Lobo, which is his wolfman, the Count Waldemar Dinitsky character, who in every single film, now I haven't seen them all, but every single film I've seen has a different origin for the Waldemar <laughs> <laughs> so, See, I don't know if it was the same up in Canada. Here in the States, what was interesting about it was like the first one, I think, in that series was that it was released as Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. Yes. Which confused yeah. young Tom to no end. <laughs> Where Frankenstein be at? How so? Where Frankenstein be at? I don't know where he be. <laughs> I'm like, what's the square wolf 
Wolf doing here? We're Frankenstein. Yeah, the titles are essentially there just to essentially get you to go to the movie. To buy a ticket, yeah. But, but you uh, buy a ticket, they don't give a shit what happens after that. They say, well, we got, right. well, we got them in the seats, the suckers. Exactly, that's what matters, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's quite a famous character in Spanish film lore. So he has a new origin every film. So people who are interested in continuity should probably steer clear. But I have yet to see an Ombre Lobo film that is not buckets and buckets of fun. But I, I have picked one that has eluded me for a very long time. Up until now, when I've been able to find it at Cinema de Bazaar, it is called The Beast and the Magic Sword. What this is? Tell me it's is, not the first Paul Nashy porno film. No, it is not. Okay. Good. <laughs> it's different in the Ombre Lobo series in that it begins in, I think, the 12th century with a relative of Waldemar Daninsky, as most of these films do. He has been asked by a Polish king or count to kill this beast that is ravaging the countryside and he now has in prison. So they have a gladiatorial battle against this guy who they sort of say he's kind of a vampire. But anyway, his predecessor kills the beast guy, cuts off his head, and demands that he marry the Count or King's youngest daughter as a prize. So he does, and she gets pregnant, and just as she's out for a stroll with her ladies-in-waiting, she comes across the sister of the beast that he killed, who is a witch, who, you guessed it, curses her and <laughs> any of their male bloodline born during the whatever new moon or whatever to carry the mark of the werewolf and thus we have the birth of Waldemar Daninsky who is now in the 16th century and runs across a blind Jewish mystic who is being hunted because they believe he's a devil worshipper or sorry he's not blind but his daughter is blind he tries to find a cure he cannot the rampage of Ombre Lobo brings the people to the mystic's door, and they kill him, but not before he asks Waldemar Daninsky to search for someone named Kian in Japan and take his daughter with him to protect her from the crowds that would kill her. So in this one, Ombre Lobo goes to Japan and meets a samurai. <laughs> and... Okay. <laughs> Encounters a silver katana, which can kill Ombre Lobo. But can he kill Ombre Lobo without killing Waldemar Danitsky? That's the question. And that's the premise behind the film. The reason I chose it, this is far from the best Ombre Lobo film, but it is fantastic because it has werewolves, it has witches, it has medieval battles, it has decapitations, <laughs> it has samurais, it has one-eyed samurais, and ninjas dying in a pool. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I always got the impression that Paul Nashy was definitely a person who believed too much was never enough. No, no, not at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was all about it. <laughs> you know what this needs? A, a zombie chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's well, what, the boy Kaufman had that covered in a uh, poultry guys. <laughs> but anyone who's seen Horror Rises from the Tomb will know that a film that has vampires, warlocks, zombies, inbred hill folk killers. <laughs> anyone who's seen that film knows that Paul Nashi is simply completely open to including anything 
in his movies that he wants. And this is a shining example of that. <laughs> it's really, really quite amazing that they pulled this off because I believe it was actually filmed in Tokyo and used a lot of Japanese actors, which was uncommon for a Spanish film of any period, really, because I think the Spaniards are quite insular in their films like the Italians are. They tend to shoot everything in Spain. They tend to uh, do it on the cheap. I think they teamed up with a Japanese production company and did a pretty fantastic sort of mashup of genres here. And it's pretty fantastic to see English subtitles of dubbed in Japanese people speaking Spanish. <laughs> you get the point that obviously the people who are Japanese in this film are speaking Japanese. Right. And yet it's dubbed in in Spanish and then the subtitles are in English. It's spectacular. <laughs> I love those multicultural movies yeah. where... What was that movie with Charles Bronson and Toshiro Mifune and oh. Ursula Andress and the Italian yeah. guy? And everybody's speaking yeah. in their own language. And it's obvious they're all speaking yeah. in their own language. But this English voice is coming out. And if you look right. at it and you say, this is insane. <laughs> it's nine different people well, speaking in nine that, different that languages. There was a period in the 60s where if you were a foreign film, you always included an American or a Canadian actor. Red Sun. Yeah. That's okay, the name of Red Sun. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Like those old Toho movies where it would be an all-Japanese cast except for Nick Adams. Yeah, except for Nick Adams, right. He was the only American <laughs> guy. Gus Tamblin. Yeah, you say, well, what does he do? He's the only American guy there, and he's the only American in a sea of Japanese. Why is he there? <laughs> well, a lot of Jello films in Italy include a male lead from the States or from Britain. I think they're trying for a crossover with the filmgoers there. But this one just goes way over the top with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spectacular. When we did the Dario Argento, what was that one with, what was his name? Jay, Jay Francisco? And, Jay John, Saxon, and yes. John Saxon, right. Unsane slash, not trauma. Oh, yeah. What is it called when it's not called Unsane? Watch, it'll come to me after we're done. Well, after we're done, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't that always how it happens? Yeah. Now, I got a chance to see Mr. Nashi live. Oh! Several years before he died. Sorry, before you get to that, you're talking about Tenebrae, right? Yes, that's the Tenebrae, one, yes. oh, okay. Sorry, go on. Stop yeah, on he was very old at the time. In fact, he had announced he was planning on doing a new Aldemar film at this convention. And he showed a clip from a film, I think it was supposed to be a slasher film, where it was a guy in executioner suit running around, but there was also a punk rock band doing like a punk rock song in the middle of a ballroom. <laughs> All right. It works for me. <laughs> <laughs> It works for you, it works for me. I always got the impression that Paul Nash, he didn't quite start with a script so much as a list of ideas. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And then if something pops up, hey, my friend's son is in a punk rock band. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's put him in. Come on, come on. Let's throw him in. What the hell? Totally. And that kind of stuff doesn't make for Kubrick-level quality cinema. But what it does is it opens up for some really fun stuff that you just don't get nowadays. Mm -hmm. If someone were to come up with a werewolf searching for a mystical sword in Japan so that he may end his curse or kill himself, today it A wouldn't get made. <laughs> I don't know. Either the person being blacklisted or C, in a fluke, would yeah. star the guy from Supernatural who was in Friday the 13th. And Jensen then, Eccles? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Jensen Eccles and, has the samurai, Johnny Depp. Yeah. 
<laughs> who apparently is trying to star in everything and anything these days. Yeah. Well, he's Zorro, don't you know? <laughs> you say that this film will probably never get made, but then after hearing that the Lone Ranger movie that had just been shelved was going to involve the Lone Ranger and Tonto using Indian spirits to fight werewolves. To fight Indian werewolves, yeah. What? <laughs> oh, you didn't hear that? No, I didn't. Yeah. That sounds crazy enough to work. <laughs> Apparently, that's what it was going to be about. It was going to be about Lone Ranger and Tonto fighting Indian werewolves. <laughs> so, I don't put anything... If we came up with this and went to Michael Bay or somebody, he'd probably give us money to make it. Yeah. Hey, there's an explosion in this film, too. Woohoo! Oh. That's my new purpose in life. There you go. down Michael Bay. <laughs> Get him to make a $30 million remake of The Beast and the Magic Sword. <laughs> Hell, I'll star in it and write it for points. <laughs> I, I hear that. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. Do you want to go next, Eric? No, you go ahead because I know that there's a movie you've been wanting to get okay. to for a while. So, As usual, I'm going to start chronologically, which means we're starting in 1971. And we can't get away from Clint Eastwood. We just did a whole Clint Eastwood episode yes, recently we did. that people have heard by now. A great episode, by the way. Oh, thank you. And now we are going to talk about a film that I greatly love that Eastwood did in 1971 at the height of his fame and his reputation has an A number one Western star that probably caused people to run from the theaters in droves. This is a movie now, for those of you who've been listening to this for a long time, you know how I feel about horror movies. Stuff like Friday the 13th and... Saw and all that other crap. I don't consider horror movies because for the life of me, I cannot see that happening. Mm -hmm. Things that scare me are things that actually could happen. Having said that, let me say that the events that take place in The Beguiled are events that I could so easily see actually happening mm -hmm. that it scares me to no end. When I talk about a horror movie, this is the type of movie that yeah. I'm talking about. Although it's funny because Universal, which released it, did not want people to know it was a horror movie. No, no. You look at that trailer, and they go out of their way to try to give you the impression it's a Western. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it does take place at the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And Clint Eastwood plays John McBurney, a Union soldier who is found near death by a bunch of girls. At, I think it's like a girls' school. If I it's, yeah, it's it girl is. School. It's a girls' school. Run by Geraldine Page. After debating about what they should do with him, they eventually decide to take him in and try to nurse him back to health. Turns out, however, Mr. McBurney is not a nice man. As we see in some flashbacks when he's relating, because mm -hmm. he outright lies and tells yeah. the headmistress, Geraldine Page, oh, I assisted the doctors, and I was taking bandages to wounded soldiers, and in a flashback, we see that he was actually shooting innocent farmers and burning down yeah. their farm. He's also kind of a bit of a con man, so he's able to manipulate everybody in this house. This house, though, is you don't want to manipulate these women. Even the servant, who's yeah. black and should know yeah. better, and she starts out saying, well, we ought to turn him in, and then he plays on her thing. Oh, well, we're fighting for you. You don't want to be a slave all your life. The little girl who finds him, played by Pamela Fry, right. he plays on her. He plays on all of them because due to their isolated state, Right. These are women in various times in their lives and various emotional development. And, and some various of levels of mental illness. Yeah. Because Geraldine Page, we learn, is not a well woman. No, she's not. It's made pretty clear that she had an incestuous relationship with her brother. Yeah. And her hormones is raging. Needless <laughs> <laughs> to say, the full first act and part of the second act can be subtitled Clint Eastwood Pimp. 
Yeah. Because he's fucking everything that moves, except for the little girl with the turtle. And he's working on her. Yeah. As soon as she get old enough, yeah. she get banged too. <laughs> because his, because she's yeah. very big. Well, I found him first. Yeah. That's my Mr. McBee. That's my Mr. McBee, yes. Although, he's really got the whim-whams for the... And it's implied that she's not exactly well, and she's the reason she's here is because she sleeps around a lot. Mm-hmm. Little, little pretty blonde yeah, student. Yeah. And it becomes something of a battle of wills because he wants to leave so they make it so he can't leave. And he's not happy with that. And it ends with one of those scenes similar to the one that you discussed in an earlier obscure movie episode where you talked about the little girl who lived down the lane. Yeah. And of course the reason this happens is because of the thing that he does that's beyond the pale to the one person he thought he could trust the most. Yeah. This is a very slow movie. It's almost two hours in length. It is very, very methodical in its pace. And a lot of people might not be able to sit through it. You know why? Because it's that psychological horror that Mm -hmm. builds up. Being men, we kind of think that, well, damn, if I was in that position with a house full of women, hell yeah. But then you see how this progresses, and let's be honest here, he fucks up. And when he does, they take their revenge, and the way they take their revenge is like... His his true colors come out. mm -hmm. Is the second it's all over for him. Yeah, they say, oh, okay, well, you know what? We got something for you. (laughs) And then, he's still not satisfied. He takes it even further. And then they say, okay, it's time for us to bring this to a close. Feminists will love this movie. <laughs> yeah. I, it was one that I wasn't able to rewatch before the show, but from what I remember, it's almost like a reversal of Misery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he's actually the bad guy, and it's a film that came around at a really interesting time for Eastwood. It came out the same year as Dirty Harry. Yeah. It came out during that transitionary period where he was moving away from the spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To become more, and now that he'd earned his star, if you will, mm-hmm. in the spaghetti westerns, he was coming back to America and starting to build on this plan that we talked about in that previous episode of him eventually beginning to the point where he could direct. Well, yeah. like we said in the earlier episode, this is why I have such a tremendous amount of respect for Eastwood because we're talking back during the 60s and even back then, you get the distinct impression he had a plan for where he wanted yeah. his career to go. And this movie was one of those steps. This and Play Misty for, for Me, me yeah. and other movies of that type where he deliberately played roles that were not heroic, that were not having them blow guys away Although he had no problem with doing those movies, recognizing that at the time that was his bread and butter. Right. And he knew he didn't have enough juice yet to just say, I don't want to do that anymore. So he did movies like these that were not well received and people just didn't want to see that. I think if they had Steve McQueen in there or Robin Mitchum, nobody would have wanted to see that movie, considering the way it ends. Right. This film, I can just imagine people running from the theater in droves when this thing came out. (laughs) Yeah. It's not easy. Easy movie to watch. There are just sequences that are just very uncomfortable to sit through. Yeah. But throughout his career, Eastwood has done one thing very, very right, and that's pick films. He is in some very interesting roles and some very interesting films. Moving away from the westerns, but even the sort of later westerns, like the outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brilliant. Pale Rider? Yeah. 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 Just fantastic choices. Everything up until his sort of 
kind of retirement. <laughs> Even Bridges of Madison County, which is a film that I absolutely couldn't come to terms with when I was 15. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? You were like, oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, come on now. <laughs> is this guy wearing sandals? Is that what's going on here? Someone say sandals. Go going back and seeing that film, he's fantastic in it. He picks these films that, that he just finds interesting both to direct and act in it's not about making him a star it's about being interesting i think and that's sort of what sets eastwood aside from other actors and actor directors in that he's ultimately concerned with the product and you have to respect him for that i can't wait to see because you know he's doing jay edgar now with right. leonardo dicaprio yeah. playing jay gahuva when i first heard about it that automatically went on my must-see list now I've got this image of Leonardo DiCaprio in a dress saying to his assistant, <laughs> I was just thinking of that too. I'm a pretty lady. Well, they say that they're not going to shy away from that. And I had heard something about Hoover family were concerned yeah. as to how they were going to handle that in this movie, his sexuality. You wouldn't want to sully the name of one of the most vicious men of all time. Oh, absolutely not. Why would we want to slander a man who fabricated evidence and forged documents and persecuted innocent people? Why would we want to do that? And had more people in his back pocket than anyone in the history of the world. It has Naomi Watts in it, it gets a watch regardless. Yeah. Of what what the content is. Somehow I have a sneaking suspicion this is going to be a much different film from The Secret Life of J. Edgar Hoover. Mmm. <laughs> It'd be interesting. And again, anything Eastwood does is interesting. Plus Leonardo DiCaprio in a dress going, I'm a pretty lady. <laughs> but, but it goes back to the beguiled which unfortunately I can't really speak to very well but mm -hmm. you can't blame them for trying to sell it as a western but it does sort of have the tall dark stranger coming into yeah. town kind of feel to it in a certain kind of way but in another way the women really are the star of that film. Mm -hmm. oh yeah Absolutely. It's just one of those movies I tell people all the time. If you haven't seen it at your earliest opportunity, yeah. Netflix it, steal a copy from Walmart, whatever you got to yeah. do, watch it. The thing is, like, Eastwood is not the protagonist of this film. He's the catalyst. Yeah. yeah. And he kind of brings all of these repressed sexual urges yeah. and desires these women have had. He brings them out. Right. There's one point where the women are starting to turn on each other, competing for his, his, affections. Uh, yeah, his affection. Until they wise up and they say, wait a minute. There's more of us than there are of him, and we're letting him start all this shit. Yeah. And we've been getting along all this time. So yeah. fuck him. Yeah, well. Not literally, but fuck him. Pretty much, that's what they do. That's exactly what they do. Okay. Am I up now? Okay. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I just want to let you all guys listening to this know that I tried to Netflix these movies before watching them because it's been a while since I've seen them and I wanted to refresh my memory. So if I have forgotten a detail or if I left it out, I trust one of my esteemed co-hosts to correct me. That's all I got to say on that score. But in any case, my first one, and taking a cue from Dez, I'll do this in alphabetical right. order. This is a movie that was made in 1974 by one of your favorite studios, Tom Amicus. Amicus Pictures. The Beast Must Die. And now, why am I picking this movie? Because as you guys who've been listening to me long enough rant and rave about black people in horror movies right. and the lack thereof, this is a movie that has as its lead character a black man, Calvin Lockhart, who was pretty well known during the black exploitation mm -hmm. era. He was too pretty to play a tough guy like right. Fred Williamson or Jim Brown. So he played pretty boys. He played a pimp or right. a con man as he did in Cotton Comes to Harlem and other movies. In this one, he plays millionaire Tom Newcliffe, who... 
has invited a group of people to his isolated mansion out in the London countryside. A mansion that has got booby traps and it's got all kinds of surveillance equipment set up so that he can see what's going on all over the mansion. Why? Because one of his guests is a werewolf. The guests, but one of them include our good friend Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing, yes. Right, who plays a professor. He's an archaeologist and an expert on werewolves. But where do you get a degree for werewolf? This experts? is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. I, I got one. University of Phoenix online. There you go. <laughs> good one. 85 bucks, man. So he invites all of these people to his mansion and. His plan is to keep them there because there's going to be a full moon in right. two nights. And he's going to keep these people there because they can't go out because he's locked up all the cars. He's taking right. all the gas out the cars. He's taking the spark plugs out. Matter of fact, the only way to get in and out is by helicopter. And he sends the helicopter away. And they're stuck there. What he's going to do is that when whoever one of these people are is going to turn into a werewolf, he's going to hunt them down and kill them because he's a hunter and he's killed everything else on Earth. And this is going to be the biggest game of all. Everybody looks at him and says, bullshit. And of course, he pulls out his extensive dossiers and files on them which shows that each one of them do have questionable murders in their past that could have been caused by a werewolf now his wife is saying listen you've finally gone off the deep end let these people go home he tells her shut up bitch and he proceeds to go around doing things like making them whole silver candlesticks or even putting silver bullets in their mouths to try to figure out which one is the werewolf now don't bite down <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> you knew it was coming, right? Now, this movie is notable for a gimmick that it has near the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. It has the werewolf brain. <laughs> All werewolves in the theater can leave now. No, it's kind of like what happened every episode of Ellery yeah. Queen yeah. with Jim Hutton, where he would turn to the audience and say, yeah. okay, you got all the clues, you got the same clues I do, right. can you figure out who the murderer is before we come back from the commercial break? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing here. They give you a minute and they tell you, okay, you have a minute, you've got all the clues, you've got all the suspects, who do you think the werewolf is? And so help me, on the screen, an actual countdown clock appears, and it counts down, and you sit there for a minute. There's a little werewolf face. Yeah, right, there's a werewolf face. Okay, so, so it's like the, one of those, the cat clocks. Yeah. The yeah. eyes go back and forth. There's a werewolf face. The eyes go back and forth. Oh, man. And it goes tick, 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 tick. Presumably gives you time to get up and go to the bathroom. They would never do this. Yeah, they would never. They would never do this in the modern day, but I love this corny shit. I love that type of stuff. Yeah. What was the film with the horror horn? Ooga. Yeah, like whenever something really bloody was going to happen, you'd hear ooga. Yeah. Ooga. And then when it was over, you'd hear ding dong. To let you know. Okay, you know what? Chambers of Horror? Okay, well, you can look now. You know, like if you didn't want to see the blood, yeah, they had the horror horn so you could hide your eyes. So they do this. They The tick, tick, tick goes off. And when it comes back, they said, have you got your suspect? Have you figured it out? Let's find out if you're right. And we go back to the movie. <laughs> I saw this on TV a long time ago, and that whole aspect of it was cut out. I guarantee that. I would remember that. Really? I need to get this on DVD and check it out again. Really? The last time I saw this was on Turner Classic Movies, and that was a while ago. They showed it as part of their Underground series. Yeah. And God bless Turner Classic Movies, they left the werewolf break in there. And I was sitting there and I said, well, damn, who's the werewolf? Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys in case you want to see it. And I do advise you to see it because it is a fun little werewolf movie. The werewolf is played, it isn't considering the budget that was here. I think they took a German shepherd and put it in, in a wolf skin. 
But I will say this. The reveal of who the werewolf was did surprise me. Because, of course, you know what I think. Well, yeah. Peter Cushing is the werewolf. Shit. Why else do they got him in the movie? I will say it's not him. And, of course, this is a... The guy with the hairy palms? <laughs> I'm not saying anything else. But I will say that this is an amusing little time waster. And, again, as I always say, it's a movie of its period and of its time. And it should be watched simply for, as you pointed out, Tom, the fun of it. Folks, they don't make movies like this anymore. And that's a damn shame. Oh, no. I, I it's a damn those shame. gimmick things. I really do. That's why I love William Castle so much. Because he yeah. was like the master of well, the Well, he was the master of that. And things like the horror horn. And so what was the one that they, they tried to do with the subliminals? There was this one horror movie where they had subliminals throughout the film. And I can't remember the name of that one. Or that really weird, was it a Mike Hammer? No, it was a Raymond Chandler film. The Lady in the Lake. Yeah. Where it's told um, from the point of view of Philip Marlowe. Right. And the whole movie is told from his, except for a couple of parts where he sees his reflection yeah. in the mirror. But otherwise, oh yeah, that's another great movie. I love that movie. But movies like this, where else would you get a movie that was corny enough that there's one part where Calvin Lockhart, after he's ranting and raving at his guests and they want to leave and he pulls out a machine gun, he says, ain't nobody going no goddamn where. You know why? Because the beast must die. You know? <laughs> where else would you, do you get movies that actually would do something like that? And he's foaming at the mouth and his eyes are bulging and oh man, it's, just, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. <laughs> oh man. I don't know about you guys, but I adore when people mention the name of the film inside the film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's still logically. We talked about when we were doing the Guilt Edge Bonds, the way they ham basically put in from a view to a kill in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of ham-fisted. The best example of when they did that in the Bond series was when they had The World Is Not Enough, yeah. where they explained that, well, that's the Bond family yeah. model, and they tied it into Honor Majesty's Secret right. Service when he was researching his family background. I'm with you, Des. I love movies where they actually, somewhere in the movie, they mention the title. Mm -hmm. It's oh, okay, that's why they call this movie that. I like to turn to whoever I'm in the theater with, if that happens and I'm in the theater, and just look at them and touch <laughs> my nose. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, see, if this film had been successful, because can have Calvin Lockhart come back and fight a Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like a vampire. Yeah. And the yeah. mummy and a zombie and the, the, the vampire must die. die. Yeah, they, they could have got a whole series out of The Frankenstein the, must die. Out of this crazy millionaire going around hunting monsters. Serious. The creature from the Black Lagoon must die. Yeah. <laughs> it, it would be the beast must die too. <laughs> yeah, and, and, well, no, but this was made the, during the, the time. The beast must die is the third one, but instead of E, it's a three. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, this was before The Godfather and The Godfather 2, which kind of codified the fact that the sequels now yeah. had the new Roman numeral. So it could be The Vampire Must Die. Yeah. That's another thing that I missed. When sequels had real titles like that, The Return of So-and-So or So-and-So Returns or whatever. Like you said, we did, oh, well, The Hangover 2, The Hangover 3. That's nothing. Call it another Hangover or Bangkok a Hangover. hangover yeah. Yeah. Be a little bit. That's a fantastic title, Bangkok Hangover. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Hangover Bangkok. You think I'm bullshit? I'm writing it down now. I want to use it as a title for a story. Bangkok Hangover. hangover. Yeah. I, I hope Dylan's involved. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Dylan and the Bangkok Hangover. <laughs> <laughs> when we think of Amicus, we pretty much think exclusively of their anthology pictures, because that's the thing that most people know them for. And we forget that Amicus had this 
whole other life where they were doing the Doctor Who spinoffs. Yeah. And the Doom Watch spinoffs. Mm. They were doing a lot of these British television shows done in the big screen shit. And they were doing all sorts of just really odd and peculiar films. Like, The Beast Must Die. One movie. I recommend it highly to everyone. So. The host of Drip Blood was Amicus, too, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, that's a bus. Matter of fact, Tom and I keep saying we're going to do that Amicus. The whole Amicus story. I know that Brian, Brian Higgins, if you're interested in the golden age of British horror, does a podcast called Hamicus, which I guess started on recently when we, we covered Link. I can't get away from monkeys this month. I don't, yeah, know, yeah, I don't know what it is. August is monkey month for yeah. you, Tom. He promises he's going to have me back when they start talking about the anthology. Oh, sweet. So, yes, the house that dripped the beast that must die. <laughs> so now it goes back to Des, I believe. Uh, Jim, by the way, we just want to point out, yes. Harry Monster Count, two. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's right. And now I feel bad that I'm not going to up that count. <laughs> oh, I got no Harry Monsters in my film. Okay, good. Unless you count this... Kim Director. Yeah. <laughs> but No, we like Kim Director. This one is 1971, a very low-key British film. I have to say first, before I get into it, that I have to thank one of my listeners over at Dread Media, Richard, who sent me this DVD because I enjoy killer kid films because last year I chose... Who can kill uh, a child? Kill a child. And I enjoy killer kid films and I'm a teacher, so he decided to send me a film where kids are going to kill their teacher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> Thanks, Richard. I'm not <laughs> this film is titled Unmin, Wittering, and Zygo. I'll say that again. <laughs> Wittering and Psycho. Now, this is a bizarre title. Doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, does it? No, we it now understand why we haven't heard of this film before. Yeah, I know. But those three names, Unman, Wittering, and Zygo, are the last three names on the attendance list of a class. Actually, I believe they're called Level 5B at mm -hmm. a boys' school in England. And at the very beginning of the film, we see a group of lead teachers carrying a casket, being pallbearers at the funeral for a poor man who fell to his death off the rocky coast that this school inhabits. And then a new teacher, first day on the job, played by David Hemmings. Speaking of British guys who starred in Italian horror films, David Hemmings from Deep Red, and a couple other Argento films, I think, as well. And also a uh, film that we talked about in our obscure horror films at one point, the Australian film Thirst. Mm. Oh, yeah, of course. He walks in with his wife, and he's going to take over the job of the dead teacher. As he's starting his first day of school, he gets the tour from someone who he befriends on staff, and then is shown around, and then he starts teaching this group of boys, and they start acting up a little bit. He said, this is all fun and games, but now it's all done. I don't want to have any more of this, or people are going to start getting in trouble. And one of the boys says, well, I don't think that's a very good idea, sir. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he says, why is that? He says, well, because we'll just kill you like we killed Mr. Pelham. Ooh. The rest of the film essentially continues with David Hemmings' character, John Ebony. Yeah, hold on, I gotta get that. Yes, John Ebony. It consists of him trying to figure out whether these boys are murderers or whether they're just fucking with them. And I chose the beast must... Or, sorry, I didn't choose the beast must die. I chose the... The beast teacher must die! Because it's so bonkers. But this is just the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. It is a pot boiler 
It's slow. It takes place over three or four days. Let's say the first week of school that he's teaching. And it is really intense. The boys are very well acted. And I think that is telling of British films of the period. Because if it were an American film, I just don't think I've seen an American film with a good child actor. <laughs> mm. And if I have, it's few and far between. But the boys in this film are absolutely spectacular and playful and they're very having been someone who's taught in the uk they're very indicative of british teenage boys there's a real defiance there i think built in to the people of britain who maybe never really had their revolution and i think that teenagehood in britain is a fascinating thing and this film captures it brilliantly it's fucking tense and there's moments where some of the boys corner the teacher's wife played by Carolyn Seymour yeah who's absolutely gorgeous mm -hmm. and she does an amazing turn in this film it's just it's so tense that you're just sort of like gripping the chair that you're sitting and watching it and of course no one believes him when he decides to bring up maybe we should look into this as more than an accident <laughs> mm -hmm. the headmaster says oh this is ridiculous his wife thinks it's ridiculous and his friend on staff thinks it's ridiculous but as the film goes on and on you see that it's not quite ridiculous at all it's the first film that I've seen in a while where it's just built up it's built up it's built up and it pays off beautifully I just think that this is a criminally underseen film. Like The Beguile, it is a bit of a stretch calling it horror, but it will disturb you, and sometimes that's the best kind of horror. It was based on a play, and considering that most of the film takes place in the classroom, it's actually a play that I would really like to see. And as a teacher, it's unnerving. <laughs> and fascinating. So I highly recommend, if you can track down, Unmen. Wittering and Psycho. I will just say that those last three names are the end of the class list, mm -hmm. and Psycho is always absent in the film. In fact, I'm looking at the IMDb page here, and they mention that in the credits. That's exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> watch the credits. Personally, I like to watch credits for the most part, but if you're someone who's so dead set against watching the credits, watch the first one minute of hell, first 30 seconds of credits. You'll be given the best jab. Essentially, a moment of relief after all this tension. Yeah. You can have a good chuckle in the credits. And that's all I'll say. So, Tom, you're, okay. up. you're up. Well, this is one that you and I have referenced uh, a number of times on Better in the Dark. We have? Yes, we have. And I'm going to break in and say, and it's one that I always nod my head when you guys bring up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's that? It is a film that was a sequel to a film that should never have had a sequel, precisely because it wasn't really a film so much as a stunt. But ended up being a pretty good film in its own right, and I'm talking about Book of Shadow, Blair oh. Witch 2, which was released in 2000, directed by the documentarian Joe Berlinger. Now, we all remember the mania that surrounded the Blair Witch Project. You mean all the suckers that got yeah, taken in by the Blair Witch? Yeah, taken in by a movie that, as one reviewer puts it, and I, I linked 
to that reviewer's blog on in my ten statements about this film recently. As he puts it, he looks like he cut out all the actual film, so all you get is two hours of three college students yelling "fuck" at each other. Yeah, three idiots that get. <laughs> and this is what I don't understand about people. Why is three idiots who get lost in the woods? Why is that supposed to be scary? And they said, "Oh, well, didn't you see the end? Well, yeah, I saw the end. Oh, so you mean I had to sit through two hours of three idiots for one scare yeah. moment that really didn't scare me? What scared me was the ticket price more than anything else that yeah. I paid for this shit. Uh, I mean, well, correct me if I'm wrong. At this point, Blair. Which is now considered the most successful independent film of all time. It made money. I'm not going to deny that. And also something else that I'm not going to deny. The marketing that they did for this was brilliant. I mean, these guys captured lightning in a bottle. They took advantage of the internet, which back then was still something. Everybody was trying to figure out how they could sell their product. These guys sold their product through the internet. And And it made artisan entertainment, which was kind of on shaky grounds Mm -hmm. to start with. A lot of money. And when they started getting on shaky grounds yet again, Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, in the last 10 years, look at all the studios that have now disappeared. Artisan, New Line Pictures is now a fully owned subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Miramax is a fully owned subsidiary of Disney. The Weinstein Brothers had their own organization and lost it. Well shit, what ain't owned by Disney these days? But but the thing is Artisan (laughs) needed to generate a lot of money very quickly. Daniel Myrick and Edward Sanchez sold the rights to the Blair Witch Project to them they had the rights to go out and make a new movie, mm-hmm. a second yeah. film. And they went to Joe Berlinger, who at the time was known as a documentarian for, at the time, the first film in what is now going to become a trilogy <laughs> called Paradise Lost, The Robin Hood Hills Murders, which was a, a film about how hysteria screwed up a town. And three innocent young men's lives. Yeah. So they approached Berlinger with this. And I like to think this is how it went in the boardroom. They come and say, okay, we would like to hire you to do... Blair Witch 2. And Joe Berlinger looks at them and goes, Really? He laughs. Yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. No, no, what he did first is reach across the table, pull back his business card, and make sure he gave them the right one. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's probably thinking at this point, these guys are the stupidest motherfuckers in the fucking galaxy. <laughs> It's a funny trend, because now we're seeing that. We're seeing documentary filmmakers picked up to direct, I shouldn't say legitimate films, because these days documentaries are better than cinema, quotation marks. But wasn't Paranormal Activity 2 directed by the guys who did, oh no, you know what, it's Paranormal Activity 3. 3 is being done by the Dowdles, yeah. You mean they're doing a third one? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. No, the guys who did Catfish. The guys who did Catfish, that's right. Yeah. But yeah. the thing is, is there's still some debate about how much a Catfish is actually a documentary. Yeah, that I have heard, too. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I haven't seen it yet, but Catfish I want to Catfish may very yeah, well be another... Kind of, another Blair Witch. Yeah. Like, yeah, this being presented. But didn't they have the guy he directed the James Bond movie? Wasn't he a documentarian? Where, yes, as a, yes. Yeah. Uh, the guy who did Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, Michael Apted? Yes. Is that his name? Yeah, he's a, he was yes, a documentarian. He was the director of the Up series. Right, exactly. And I remember that when he was picked to do it, a lot of people said, yeah. really, him? It would turn out. He did a great, mm-hmm. he did a phenomenal job. That was a terrific movie. So, after Berlinger realized these guys were dead serious in their stupidity, <laughs> he took their money. He, took them, he did the smart, he took their he money. He took their money and did the best thing he could do. And I contend, after watching this again this past week, to prepare for this episode, I am convinced that Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, is Joe Berlinger pointing and laughing at artisans. 
Yeah. For about 90 minutes. This is the movie that should have been the first one. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. This is one of the few cases that I could say, yeah, ignore the first movie yeah. completely. Watch the sequel. Well, one of the great things about this movie is that all that backstory that we never get, the Blair Witch Project, what we would get if we looked at the websites and stuff, mm -hmm. is in this movie. Right. Yeah. Where Jeffrey Donovan goes over, and boy, is it weird seeing him in this movie, mm -hmm. playing a loop-de-loop. -loop. Yeah. You just expect him to, like, take out his cell phone and call Sam X. Because when I read your 10 statements, yeah. I said, holy shit, Jeffrey Donovan? From Bur I said, now I gotta see this again. That's has been so long since I've seen it, I've forgotten who was in it. I remember the movie. I, I think Berlinger chose people who weren't known actors at that time because a lot of what he does in this film is kind of looking over at Myra Consensus and going, really? You yeah. pulled that off? Well, it's actually funny because was that before we were recording? We were talking about J. Edgar? No, no, yeah. it was during, the, no, it was during, during this thing. During Clint Eastwood, yeah. He plays Robert Kennedy in that film. <laughs> Which now, oh, really? by the way, explains a lot of how some people disappeared during the Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, I need you to get rid of this. See, now I really want to see it. Yeah, and picking up on the is it true or whatever factor, everyone uses their real first names. Yeah, and the last names are very similar to their last names. So yeah. Jeffrey Donovan plays Jeffrey Patterson, a gentleman who runs the Blair Witch Hunt. <laughs> a cottage industry taking advantage of the mania around the Blair Witch Project. A metaphorical representation of the film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we find out that he didn't see the movie in its initial release because he was bug-fucking-sane. <laughs> and he's obviously still not well as we hear him being interviewed and he's going, there are a lot of people coming to this town, a lot of naysayers who say, nay. But I say, yay! <laughs> He's running his first tour okay. of the Blair Witch sites. And amongst the five people are Stephen and Tristan, who are working on a book about the Blair Witch Mania. Okay. Erica Gearson, played by the absolutely amazingly, amazingly hot Erica Learson, who was the daughter of the owner of USA Today. And the thing I find hilarious is that when this film came out, they did a lot of publicity for this film, and I'm thinking, and did you know before or after you did all this publicity, whoever went to see it was seeing your daughter buck naked? Yeah, right? And she plays a witch who is hoping to commune with the Blair Witch and convince her to be her mentor. And finally, we have Kim Diamond, a goth girl. She claims to be psychic, but she claims the only reason she's going on this thing is because, hey, I thought the movie was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so Donovan leads his people into the Burkittsville's woods. They have an encounter with the Blair Witch Walk. A rival Blair Witch tour, mm -hmm. and it looks like a fight's about to start until Kim goes, Oh, we're really spooked up at what happened over Coffin Rock. They feed him this bullshit line about mm. something really, so they go off to Coffin Rock. And they go off on that. They way then proceeded to just a incredibly heroic amounts of drugs and alcohol. All right. See, that's the part of the movie I like. They pass out and wake up to a rain of paper. Somebody came into the Russell Parr house in the middle of the night while they were sleeping and destroyed Stephen and Tristan notes. Mm -hmm. Their entire work mm -hmm. is gone. And then they realize that there is a space of about five hours of missing time. But they find the cassettes. Even though all their recording equipment is destroyed, the cassettes 
are buried where they found the original videotapes. Yeah. There's a gap of about five hours. But if they watch the tape, they can see these little flashes of something. Mm -hmm. So they go off to Jeffrey's home, which is actually an abandoned broom factory that mm -hmm. he convinced the state to sell him for a dollar. And that's where things get seriously <laughs> fucked. Really go wrong. Uh, I'm convinced that this is Joe Berlinger pulling a spinal tap on the whole Blair Witch phenomenon. For sure. I wonder if he was a little bit insulted by the offer because, as Des and I were discussing, he chooses to mirror the opening to his documentary Paradise Lost mm -hmm. in the opening of this film. Okay. Yeah. Donovan, I can see what USA saw in him because he's very twitchy, mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of humor involved. Kim Director, who plays the goth girl, also is incredibly fun. If there's a, a wet blanket, it's Steven, I think. And I think Steven, he ends up playing the Scully. He needs to be the wet blanket, and it's one of the more compelling characters, I think. Because of that, he has kind of a greater journey, doesn't he? One of the things I love about Kim Director's performance is the more normal she looks, the more insane she gets. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Is that during the course of the film, she starts removing her makeup, and she ends up looking more and more natural, mm -hmm. but she's going more and more... She out there, out there in the world. This he is... also has one of my favorite character introductions in a film. Oh yeah, <laughs> on the tombstone. Yeah, they find her laying on this tombstone. They're like, "Oh, are you trying to commune with the spirits?" She's like, "No, I'm fucking tired." <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely an unreliable narrator film. Mm -hmm, you yeah. know something really, really awful has happened. You don't know what it is just yet. There's all this weird shit going on where the tour members find these weird Norse runes carved into their bodies that appear and disappear at will, it seems. Mm -hmm. They finally are able to slow down some of these subliminal snaps. Yeah, on the videotape. On the videotape. Yeah. To find a very naked... I love Jeffrey Patterson's reaction when they finally get it cleared up. It goes... <laughs> it just laughs and goes... That, my friends, is a naked woman. <laughs> There's a lot of humor in this yeah, movie. Well, that's, what you know. that's why I loved it. Yeah, it's hilarious, and I'm going to come right out and say that this is one of the most successful sequels, story-wise, that I've ever seen. Yeah, it succeeds at being a better movie than the original. It succeeds at being way more interesting than the original because, really, what was interesting about the original is that sort of William Castle style promotion that the film had. Yeah. Oh, this is real. Well, it was probably the only thing he could have done. Oh, yeah. But what they did with this film was make a really interesting satire that explained far more of the mythos behind what was supposed to make the Blair Witch Project cool, and they did it in this film instead. You also have these rather interesting touches, like early on you have Jeffrey getting into an argument with, I think it was Erica, where he says what is pretty much the mantra of the film. Film lies, video tells the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And sure enough, all the hallucinations we see are on film. Mm. And the true stuff is we on the see video. on the video. Good point, yeah. I will say that it gets some clever, too clever, including the title itself is too clever for its own good. Book of Shadows, there is no book in the film, mm -hmm. but what they're referring to is the movie itself. You're right. Which is, of course, done by creating shadows on film with mm -hmm. the, through the emulsions. But I think this film is unjustly kind of forgotten immediately after. Part of it was because, of course, this did not do well, so it signed Artisan's death warrant. 
They also fucked with it, too. Yeah. Like, like, this isn't actually Joe Berlinger's film. They did reshoots and changed the story, from what I understand, quite a lot. I actually am interested now to go back and listen to the commentary yeah. on this. Well, I'm curious uh, to see what Berlinger originally wanted to do. Yeah. This is a film that's ripe for a director's cut, if you ask mm-hmm. me. Of course, mm-hmm. it'll never come out. But it's unfortunate because it, it took a really... Who I consider to be an important filmmaker who made a really interesting and fun film. And it sort of took him and, well, it fucked his career up. He eviscerated yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. His work on the Paradise Lost films, it should be noted, I think, that as we record this, we're just two days away from the West Memphis Three actually being released from prison. So he is filming the third film. I always thought it would be nice that the third film would be called Paradise Regained because I think the ending of this story is a little bittersweet in that they bizarrely had to sign a document that says that they were taking a guilty plea while maintaining their claims of innocence in order to be released from prison. It's shockingly insulting, I think, to people who gave up 18 years of their life on rumors and hysteria, as Tom said. The third film is called Paradise Lost Purgatory, and hopefully there will be a fourth that clears everything up. But it sort of derailed Berlinger until he was able to get back on the map with Metallica's Some Kind of Monster, which was a story of redemption for Metallica as much as it was for Berlinger himself. The guys had a fantastically varied and interesting career. Interesting. I'll have to look up some more of his movies. Have have you guys seen Some Kind of Monster? No, I have not seen it. It's quite interesting. I I think it's also, I mean, I'm saying it as a fan of Metallica, but I think it is an interesting documentary, and I think it's probably worth watching just for fans of film, period. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend that for sure. The Paradise Lost films are brilliant. Okay, I definitely want to check those out, the Paradise mm-hmm. Lost film. This is the first I'm hearing of it from you, and that yeah. sounds very interesting. And he's also, as I see in IMDb right now, he's directing a documentary on Clive Barker, funnily enough. Yeah. Ooh, that's a name you don't hear too much of these days. So I'll yeah. be looking forward to that. You know what else I want to point out here, though, about this cast? which I think is very, very good. It's better than the first cast. No, it's oh, yeah. And I think that it's bared out by the fact that we don't see that first cast very much these days. Two Halloween pumpkins and a monkey would have been a better cast. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Well, I have this image of this monkey with these two Halloween pumpkins walking uh, uh, under his arm, yeah. <laughs> And subtitles, what do you mean we're lost? Yeah. <laughs> Jumped up. And of course, on and of course instead of finding an empty house, they find Leonardo DiCaprio in a dress going, I'm a pretty lady. In a bit of way more interesting movie. If I want to see three people argue about cigarettes, I'll go back to high school. I saw paranormal activity. And people were coming up to me, oh, Derek, wasn't that the most scariest thing you ever saw? So let me tell you something. A man and woman arguing in a house isn't horror. It's marriage. <laughs> and some people think that marriage is horror. Yeah, well. <laughs> I'll say that Paranormal Activity for me is a more effective film than Blair Witch. Part of the problem with Blair Witch is, I think, and this is why I think it worked on some level, is that it was shaky cam before shaky cam. Mm. Yeah. And as such, because the camera is being shaken so much, it gives you a queasy sensation. It makes you not being able to focus as well, so you're kind of getting caught in the moment. The Blair Witch is one movie, and for those of you who are sensitive to my racial statements, you can leave the room now. The Blair Witch 
Enterprise is one of those movies that I put in that long line of movies. And I like these movies. I right. really do. Because they're movies about white people that usually go in some place. They have no place yes. going. <laughs> and then get mad when things go wrong. <laughs> but you had no business going there in the first place. Why would you go? You go Well, Erica does have yeah. that theory about sex. Yeah. Okay. Why do you go into the woods with... Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I'm going to get my racist hat on and say, Derek, it's because we're white. We can go wherever we want. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, okay. Now, see, there's an honest man. <laughs> see, Of course he's honest. He's Canadian. See, <laughs> the Blair Witch Project would never have been made with black people because they would yes. say, well, why are we going in the woods? <laughs> yeah. Why are we going there? There's no check cashing place in there. Yeah. There's no hair product place in there. There's no... They didn't put it, they didn't no Kentucky Fried Chicken. In there. There's no Chinese restaurant in there. Why should I go? You know. <laughs> There's a reason I'm not in there is because I'd be like, wait, we're sleeping in fucking tents? Hey, no. Thank you. I-, I have a fire pit in my backyard. I'll be here. Yeah. Okay, to go back to something resembling <laughs> ser- serious film commentary here, <laughs> but I agree with you 100% time on all the reasons for why Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows is a much more mm-hmm. just well thought out movie period somebody right. actually sat down and said how can we make a movie that is a logical sequel to the first one right. but yet still poke at the holes that was in that yeah. movie and matter of fact even try to plug up some of those holes okay so is it on me now yes for my second film I'm going back to the werewolf motif to talk Beast Count 3 to talk about a movie that is a favorite of both myself and Tom's and one that we always rant and rave about every time that we even get close to the subject of werewolves I think it's safe to say that there has never been a werewolf movie like this and I've never seen a werewolf movie like this since now was this Neil Jordan's first film? I don't know I can look up look it up on the Uh, good old I, I, I think it was as a director but not as a writer we of course are talking about the 1984 The Company of Wolves right directed by Neil Jordan who is probably a lot of you will know more as a director of The Crying Game he directed that too yeah but this one this was a fantasy horror movie of course about werewolves first of all the movie is he directed one other film what was the name of that called Angel okay yeah. Just out of curiosity, what did he do after The Company of Wolves? He did Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, okay. Five Spirits, We're No Angels, The Miracle, The Hi. Crying Game, Interview with the Vampire, Michael Collins, The Butcher Boy, In Dreams, The End of the Affair, The Good Thief, Breakfast on Pluto, The Brave One, Odin, and is presently developing Byzantium. So it's fair to say that Neil Jordan is a very eclectic director who's done movies in a lot of different subjects. Because I know Mona Lisa, that's a crime thriller Mm -hmm. with Bob Hoskins. High Spears was a comedy with Peter O'Toole about uh, ghosts. And a very young Liam Neeson. Yeah, with ghosts inhabiting a Scottish castle. So he's very eclectic. And his eclecticism, boy, I'm proud of myself for pronouncing that correctly, (laughs) is really displayed in this movie, which takes place in the dreams of a little girl who lives in this English estate that's way out in the country and we see her with her and her parents at the beginning and they're going someplace and she goes up to her room and she goes to sleep and when she goes to sleep then she starts to dream that pretty much she's a little red riding hood and Angela Lansbury is her grandmother we see that this movie starts taking on layers upon layers because in this dream within the dream Angela Lansbury is telling her stories about to beware of the lusts of men which she likens to the nature mm-hmm. of wolves, which, of course, are werewolves in this story. And it's like three or four different tales 
that are told inside of this. There's one with Stephen Rhea who right. gets married mm -hmm. to a woman and he disappears occasionally and he tells his wife, well, don't go outside. Don't go outside. Right. And she hears the wolves howling outside and eventually she finds out. She's married right. to a werewolf. She cuts off his head and it falls into a pot full of milk. Right. Which <laughs> when one of the most vivid shots of the movie where it turns red from the blood and when the head pops back up, it's her husband's head. There's the one that you like, the story with Terrence Stamp. Oh, I love Shows it. up as the devil. I've said it before. Every film would be improved by Terrence Stamp being driven in a limousine by a albino white chick in a chauffeur's uniform petting a rat skull. This is one of the three things that we've always said. Every movie can be improved. Yes. Point. What you just said about yeah. Terrence Stamp showing up as the devil. Helen Mirren popping up and firing a machine gun and killing <laughs> up the cast. Yes. And... During the credits, you have a little box on the bottom with Sam Elliott yes. explaining what you just saw. <laughs> well, we saw a lot of crazy shit about werewolves. <laughs> Any movie could be made infinitely better by any one of these. Yeah. I'm just trying to picture Sam Elliott talking about the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, we just saw three idiots. We saw a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit with three idiot kids running around, not knowing what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. I would rather have watched a monkey with two jack. Okay, but that whole thing with Terrence Stamp, not only is it surrealistic and bizarre, but by this time you've been with the movie for so long that you're not surprised yeah. by anything that happens. But it's like he drove off the set of another movie, yeah. like Neil Jordan just saw him and said, could you just drive in and just do a quick bit for yeah. five minutes and then drive off? Which is what the feeling that you get. That's how improvisational well, it feels. Well, by that time, because it happens at the halfway point of the movie, yeah. you've bought into the dream logic of this film where things will just bleed into each other. Which is one thing I love about the movie. You hear so much about movies that achieve a dreamlike state or make you feel like you're in a dream. Yeah. And I look at it and I say, no, I don't. But The Company of Wolves actually does make you feel like you're in a dream because things happen. And even though they're bizarre and crazy, Neil Jordan's direction pulls you yeah. in. So could you don't question it. Like the banquet scene where right. everybody turns into werewolves. Where, where the, the woman curses. The whole yeah. wedding party. Why are they having this party, a full banquet, out in the middle of these horrible-looking woods? This doesn't look like any place you want to have it. It's so realistic. It's bizarre, but you go with it. You have the famous scene where the guy where he turns into a werewolf and the mouth About pokes out. Through, yeah. yeah, that was shown in all the posters. And at the end of the movie, it ends on such an ambiguous note that you don't know if the little girl is still in her dream. Did she come out of her dream? Did the werewolves pursue in her dreams? What is real and what isn't in this movie? I've seen it about three or four times and I still don't get all of it even after seeing yeah. it all those times. And I always see something new. Like, every time, for some reason, I never remember the scene where she climbs up the tree and she looks in the nest. And, and the there's egg the babies, yeah. Right, and the egg breaks open and it's a little baby in there. It's, Holy <laughs> shit, and with the milk, what is that about? Yeah, it's a weird, weird, weird movie, but it's a movie that ultimately captivates me. If it's on, I'm sitting there and watching it. Let yeah. me put it down, it, bottom line. Definitely the best film based on an anthropological text ever. What anthropological text? The girl, that who, Dr. The, Deja. the girl, DJ. <laughs> the women who run with wolves. Oh, okay. Which was a study of folklore by Angela Carter. Oh, very good. Well, thank you. I did not know that. See, and, I learned something every day. I, I'm glad you brought up the dreamlike state thing because this, to me, has always been the film that you can go back to and say, yeah, everyone says that this film is sort of dreamlike and blah blah blah, but Company of Wolves is something that actually is. I saw it on the shelf for quite a while when I was a kid, and I was always just completely drawn in by that VHS cover. Oh yeah, the one with mm, looking at 
right now. Out of his mouth. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. so fantastic. And then when I finally saw it, I couldn't have been older than ten. It blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea what I was seeing, and it really blew my mind. To this day, it's one of the more impactful werewolf films that I've ever seen. And it came out at around that period where we were having a werewolf movie boom. We had American Werewolf in London. We had The Howling. Mm -hmm. We had a few others. But this was the one that it was whoa because it wasn't like the rest of them. It definitely wasn't. Which I mean, is kind of, I think the reason why it gets kind of forgotten. Right. It's a film that invites you to decode it. You're not a passive person. Right. At least I'm not. I'm not passive while watching this movie. I'm watching it and I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to decipher certain things. This is a perfect example of what me and you have been taught. Because at one time, I heard that they were planning on remaking this movie. And I said, hell no. Oh, God. Because yeah. this movie would not work with CGI at all. Mm -hmm. It works because of these practical effects. And it is so obviously built on stages. And it's so obviously, it's not real. And it, besides, it's not supposed to look real. No. You know if this was remade today, if let's say Platinum Dunes picked up the rights for this, mm -hmm. it would lose what makes it unique. Just like that Fright Night remake that came out this week. Okay. Where it seems like they looked at you know, one of the few successful horror comedies and said, you know what this film doesn't really need? The comedy. It doesn't need the gothic aspects of it. Now, let's put Jerry in a modern track house. They would take it and turn it into just a standard stalk and slash. A werewolf movie with no little stories because, of course, producers now believe that the anthology film is the kiss of death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the poetry and the stuff that invites you to come to with its own interpretation mm -hmm. would be gone. I hear you. An argument we made, we saw what would have been an In the Company of Wolves remake earlier this year, Red Riding Hood. Red Riding Hood. The Amanda yeah. Seafree vehicle. Matter of fact, I'm going to go so far, and if y'all thought that I was really cussing or using, saying racist things, I'm about to say a very racist thing right now <laughs> when it comes to this movie. Everybody's going to hate me when I say this, but this was a movie that was not made for horror movie fans. This was a horror movie oh, made no. for intellectuals. Yeah. Now, there's that dreaded word, folks. <laughs> oh, I mean, hell, that they said, oh, I'm not listening to this shit anymore. Yeah. He said a bad word. It was a horror movie made yeah. for intellectuals. That ending with the wolf girl coming out of the well and yeah. quote unquote yeah. sampling the human world sampling and deciding, human, yeah. not for me. <laughs> not for me. I'm going, <laughs> this ain't for me. But it was. This was an art house horror movie that was made for art house goers. Right. And yes, folks, go do Scramble Wikipedia and looked that up and <laughs> intellectual this is what it was made for it wasn't made for the Friday the 13th slash Nightmare right. on Elm Street crowd no definitely not it has a lot of hallmarks of European cinema mm -hmm. where it's much more acceptable to take on aspects of art film within a popular film Neil Jordan commits what I guess would nowadays be considered a cardinal sin in that he assumes that you're intelligent it bingo there you go. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't have to explain every little thing to you. You have a brain. Do some work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, of course, people don't want to do, which is why I think you're right. This movie is falling out of favor because the mantra, of course, today is, well, I just want to be entertained. Okay. I have nothing against being entertained, but I think once in a while, it's nice to give your brain a little something to chew on. Right. Trust me, it'll thank you for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> is it time for the recap, Tom? Yes, so. So, these um, count... Three. Three. Yeah, that's right. Crazy yeah. people count. Three. Three. Okay. <laughs> oh, to summarize. So summarize. Des, 
Me? Yeah, yes, you were first. You were first, so you summarized first. Do two films. I cover 1983's The Beast and The Magic Sword. If you want to see a swarthy Spaniard go up against a samurai who also has to fight ninjas. Or the psychological thriller from England, Unmen Wittering and Zygo. If you want to see a film that, for all intents and purposes, by hearing the name, you'd never want to see. They're both fantastic. See, yeah, that I want to seek out. I understand that it's not on video, right? Yeah, I don't believe it is, no. I just looked on Netflix because I've got my Netflix yeah. on while I, so I can look up these movies. It's not on Netflix either, either on streaming or DVD. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you're going to hunt it up, but when you do, let me know. Well, <laughs> I'm I sure there are too. ways. Yes, there are yeah. ways and I, there are ways. That is how it was sent to me. It's certainly not a store-bought DVD. Yes. I'm... Nudge, nudge, say no more. <laughs> okay. My two choices were the Clint Eastwood psychological southern gothic, The Beguiled, which is not for you if you like mushrooms. <laughs> and Joe Berlinger looking at artisan entertainment and the original Blair Witch and going, really? Is that what you, that what you want? <laughs> is that what you really want? And creating what I think is an actually a very funny, very smart film which comments on the original hysteria, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. Okay, and my two from 1974, the werewolf movie, The Beast Must Die, starring Calvin Lockhart as a crazed millionaire who invites a bunch of people to his mansion to prove that one of them is a werewolf. And whatever you do, do not leave the movie until after the werewolf break. (laughs) (laughs) I would go as far to say that if you leave during the werewolf break, you're a fool. Absolutely. And uh, 1984, The Company of Wolves, directed by Neil Jordan, that phantasmagorical werewolf movie that is part dream, part real, and you never quite know which is which. With Angela Lansbury, memorable role as Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother. Very uh, sadistic grandmother, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's not forget, of course, Terrence Stamp. As the devil devil in a Rolls Royce. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that is truly crazy about that, I still come back to it, he's petting a freaking rat head. Yeah, (laughs) this is part of the whole thing about that movie. Why is he petting a rat? Well, why is the devil riding in a Rolls Royce? Who knows? Why does he just look like Terrence Stamp? Why does he look like Terrence Stamp? Why is he hired an albino chickie to be his chauffeur? Yeah. We shall never know. We'll never know. And Neil Jordan is probably not telling uh, we've come to the end of another obscure horror movie episode, and as always... A very hirsute one, apparently. We'd <laughs> like to give all thanks and kudos to our co-star, Desmond Redd. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to guest on Better in the Dark. And just a reminder, if you like what you hear from Des, you can hear him every week, frequently with his buddy, talking about movies and stuff on Dread Media. That's right. In fact, you've got a whole little Dread Media empire going now. <laughs> We're jealous. Yeah, Dread Media Presents. I decided to take all my segments and make them their own little mini-podcasts. What so, cracked uh, me up the most is the ones growing up geek where you have your kids on. I, I love doing those, and I still have one in the bank, but I think my kids are over talking in a microphone. <laughs> so I don't know if I can get them back. They didn't want to talk about Captain America. I just loved how when you were doing X-Men First Class, the one kept going back to the Beast. Oh, I know. Yeah, they, they'd love this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I like is the Beast. 
He goes, rah! <laughs> it's one of those times you send Mike the image for the banner for the podcast. And okay, it's a picture of the Beast from X-Men First Class. And it's one of those times where Mike would probably generally find a better image. Mm-hmm. Like, Why well, you want the Beast? But it's like, okay, this has to be the image. It's a, yeah, it's a, it, yeah. You don't understand. This oh, has to be the image. He gave up on us a long time ago. <laughs> I think about the time that I sent him the picture of Ken Ober, Colin Quinn, and uh, Carrie Worth circa remote control. He gave up on us. He's like, oh, there's no way I'm going to stop him from doing this. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, but you can uh, find me at dreadmedia.com where I do stuff every week. As for us, whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to tell us that Book of Shadows Blair Witch Project 2 would have been improved by a werewolf with a monkey <laughs> and a pumpkin and a jack-o'-lantern, finding Leonardo DiCaprio in a dress saying, I'm a pretty lady, there's a number of ways you can reach us. Everything is better with a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> you can write us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. You can join the very active Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in Better in the Dark, and join up. Got a lot of new people coming in, too. Mm. Also, all three of us have Facebook pages if you want to follow our maybe not tied into our podcasting activities. So just type in our names and you will find us. You could always visit betterinthedarksite.com because we're always trying to do little things there. You can visit the Hottie Hall of Fame and our mm-hmm. pictures of Kristen Bell. And you can find all of our previous episodes mm-hmm. there, so by all means. Yeah. That's the one-stop shopping for all things Better in the Dark. The only thing you will not learn is why we're no longer pushing out audible.com. <laughs> do mosey over to pulpworkspress.com where you can pick up copies of How the West Was Weird Volumes 1 and 2. In which both Tom and I have stories. And 2 contains also a story by Des. As well as Derek's Dylan books and other goodies forthcoming. You can also, of course, go to altervisions.org where Derek and I are doing the Avengers, both branches. Yeah, Tom is doing Avengers West Coast and yeah. doing a bang-up job on that, I must Just say. Just doing crazy shit. And, of course, Derek has seen the piece of artwork I had commissioned for something we got planned for next year. Oh, for the, yeah. The 10th year anniversary of Altered Visions. All I'm Ooh. going to say about that right now is that if you're into steampunk, you're going to like what Tom has got planned. Nice. And Can I just jump in there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And, and add that I kind of jumped into the fan fiction realm as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've uh, taken on the long dormant Liberty Legion series over at Marvel Omega, and that's marvel.omegacen.com. And not only. Just Google Marvel Omega, and you can. Yeah. You can find it that way, and, and of course, there's there's some other great writings there as well, isn't there? Yeah, if you're into Marvel fan fiction, I'd recommend it heartily, especially mm-hmm. nowadays with comic books in the state that they're in. I get more pleasure out of reading fan fiction than I do out of yeah, because that's comics written by sane people. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Oh, also, you can also follow Tom on uh, Damn Your Ears, Damn Your Eyes. 
10 statements about dot, 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 in which Tom takes a movie or a TV show and he sums it up in 10 statements. Right now, he is doing 10 statements on both the new Torchwood Miracle Day series and his... Fuck you, Russell T. Davies. And his favorite TV show of all time, Veronica Mars. Now, I wouldn't call it my favorite TV show of all time. Well, it's up there in the top five. The Avengers still has that slot. Uh, well, maybe after you finish doing Veronica Mars, you can do the event. Well, what I'll probably do is I'll, I'll throw it up to the readers again. That's yeah. why we did Veronica Mars, because people were like, Veronica Mars, Veronica Mars. Okay. Why? Because I guess they wanted to hear me embarrass myself. <laughs> we always want to hear you embarrass yourself, Tom. You maybe want to hear that, me embarrass myself, or get, that's why we love you, or get wrapped up in <laughs> get wrapped up in seizures of rage, which is apparently what's going on with because God, that that torchwood thing is oh well. Listen, everybody told you, Tom, you don't have. I think they feel sorry for me now. It's, I don't because you, yeah. you, we told you stop doing it. Make a promise, keep a promise. Oh, please. <laughs> As Ernest Borgnine said in the Wild Bunch, it's not your word; it's who you give it to. <laughs> You can also... And what happened to Ernest Borgnine in The Wild Bunch? Same thing is about to happen to you if you don't get out my face. (laughs) Also, if you like movie reviews, I also have the Ferguson Theater where I have movie reviews. So if you don't get enough of me here, you can go there and check it out. And I think that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Are we done, buddy? I guess we are done. Is there anything else, Des, you want to say before we sign out? No, uh, just... Thank you for having me, guys. I always love to be on Better in the Dark. Okay, well, you're family. That's the best way I could put it. Now, I've got to think of a song to use as the bed for the outro that's not Werewolves of London. Uh, yeah, yeah, because that's so cliche. Yeah, no matter well, how yeah. much I love Warren Zevon. Yeah, Werewolves of London is kind of. Uh, it pisses me off that that's the only Warren Zevon song they have in the, the karaoke place I go to. Oh man, you know what you ought to tell them to get? What's that song? I love that one. Uh, Rolling the Headless Gunslinger. Yeah, Rolls the Headless Thompson Gunner. Yeah, that one. The lawyers, guns, and money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard the Harry song by Patrick Wolf? No. <laughs> that might be a good one. I'll what was the name? What was the mouth? That was the name of the mouth. The Bush song that they kind of remixed for American Werewolf in Paris, otherwise oh, known as right. the unnecessary sequel. <laughs> otherwise known as we really like CGI, even though it's it's at, at the level of development right now that it's crap. <laughs> what an awful movie that is. Oh, it's, I like Julie Delphi. You told me that uh, there was going to be a movie where I would see Julie Delphi naked and I would not like it. <laughs> I would have been like, you are insane, sir. I know. Well, it's like that movie. What was that one that you couldn't believe a movie that had Christina Ricci? Oh, naked. God, After Dot Life. And you couldn't believe that any movie with her naked would be boring. A film so pretentious, even the title is pretentious. Let's put a dot like it's a... Uh... I know. Why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but anyway, we get ahead of... Until next time, be sure to keep your silver on hand and don't take mushrooms from pretty girls. <laughs> or do take mushrooms from pretty girls. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go see that movie. That movie. Good now, night. Now we'll begin the werewolf break. <laughs> There's something I should tell you. But maybe you're too young. A wolf may be more than he seems. He may come in many disguises. The worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside. And when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. The beast in me. 
You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Des Reddick of Dread Media, Ian Loring of Cinerama, the Drunken Zombie Crew, Eric Frome, and of course, the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark has already started its Kickstarter campaign to raise money for its remake of Blair Witch Project. We've got the Halloween pumpkins in the dress. We just need enough money to pay for Leonardo DiCaprio and the monkey. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.beehyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with Yerk2.net, Community of Podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that every movie can be improved by a werewolf break. Beast count? Three. Sometimes it tries to kid me that it's just a teddy bear. You are not our guest. Do you get any ideas of trying to amuse yourself with any of the ladies in this house? No, we'll just find a yourself out on that road so fast no. you won't know what happened to you.